reminder to please subscribe to my YouTube channel, Dr. Brian Keating, for a video version of this episode with Martin Maldacena. It's uh, full of interesting visualizations and other fun things. And uh, I hope you'll subscribe and enjoy the rest of my channel and all the videos I put out there, about one or two per week. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Hello, everybody. Uh, watching out, hopefully, on YouTube and elsewhere. Uh, I am Brian Keating, uh, the fearful host of the Into the Impossible podcast. And today I'm joined by none other than a legend uh, in the world of theoretical physics, cosmology, uh, even I want to pick his brains about economics and other things that uh, you might not associate with a physicist working at the Institute for Advanced Study. But Juan, I want to thank you for joining us today. How are you doing? Hello, nice to see you. It's good to see you too. So uh, what I had originally pinged you about is your willingness to come on to discuss a topic that uh, we've been reviewing in my research group of cosmologists here at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, we like to do things outside of our comfort zone. And one of those things is to do uh, research into the very deep and provocative aspects of theoretical particle physics and, uh, and, and also to investigate perhaps the deeper philosophical implications of the work that we do and not only just, you know, turn screws. There's nothing wrong with turning screws, but, uh, but uh, certainly it's fun to get out of our comfort zone. And so we've been reviewing your papers on, on wormholes and, uh, and even went to your back catalog, as they might say, and went into uh, the original papers on the subject. And we came up with a lot of questions, but uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll be able to answer some of those and some from the audience who's listening as well. <clears throat> so... The paper in question is uh, is entitled "Humanly Traversable Wormholes," and I wonder if uh, we could start off um, by talking about the inspiration for that paper uh, and its predecessor paper, which uh, was "Traversable Wormholes." Not speaking specifically about uh, humanly traversable yet, but in 2018, you and your colleague Alexei and uh, Fedor Popov wrote a paper called "Traversable Wormholes." I want to ask, what was the impetus uh, for you to investigate something so potentially fantastical as a wormhole? Um, well, the, this came out of thinking about black holes and uh, the black hole interior and entanglement. So there is, a, of course, wormholes are fascinating to think about uh, regardless, and that's also why we're thinking about this. but. Wormholes seem like they are very exotic. However, something like a wormhole is already present in the simplest uh, solution of general relativity. So if you take the uh, general relativity with the vacuum solution and a spherically symmetric, uh, you assume spherical symmetry, there is some solution, which Schwarzschild wrote, which sometimes we call it the black hole solution or the Schwarzschild solution. And that solution has the peculiarity that it has two exteriors connected by a single interior. Um, and uh, this was a funny feature that uh, Einstein and Rosen noticed in the 30s. And, um, and yeah, it, it, it's been uh, well known for a long time. Um, and so this solution has the geometry of a wormhole at a spatial instant. So at an instant of time, in time, uh, you have a, a, a three-dimensional space. Uh, our three, let's say, imagine you, we had the solution, we would have our three-dimensional space is connected through a wormhole to a second copy of another three-dimensional space. Um, 
it has the funny feature that the wormhole is not traversable. So if you try to go from one side to the other, you find that the solution is time dependent and this geometric connection closes off and um, there is a part of space that shrinks. You have a kind of big crunch in, the, in this wormhole, it shrinks. Uh, it's very similar to what would happen if you took a piece of dough and you stretched it a lot, it becomes very thin and that's what happens to this geometry. Uh, and the resulting very thin space is what we normally call the black hole singularity. Um, so if you try to traverse it, you just end at uh, singularity, you die. So <laughs> not fun. That's to uh, be avoided, yes. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Yeah. So that that's uh, that's present already in that solution. It's uh, not traversable. And I should emphasize that if you had an actual black hole that is produced in through astrophysical processes, you don't get this full solution. You only get portion of this solution, because uh, usual black holes are not the solution of the vacuum Einstein equations, but the solutions with matter. And um, those black holes, those black holes would have a geometry similar to the one we discussed up to a certain point. And then you encounter the matter of the star that produces the black hole and space somehow ends there and uh, it doesn't have a second side. Um, but it's a very closely related geometry, um, certainly allowed by Einstein's equations. Um, the simplest solution of these equations. Um, okay, so that that's one geometry, that's one part of the story. Another part of the story comes from a different line of reasoning, which is uh, thinking about Hawking radiation. So black holes have this funny feature of emitting uh, some radiation. So even though they are solutions in the vacuum, uh, they look like thermal objects. They emit radiations as if they were objects at some temperature, and this radiation is very small for astrophysical black holes, but could be larger for smaller sized black holes. So that you can you can even run into the paradoxical situation of having a white black hole because uh, if the black hole has the size of the order of uh, a micron or about smaller than a micron, the, the size of the wavelength of uh, light, uh, uh, you you would see it white. So um, um, and. So that's a feature of black holes that involves quantum mechanical aspects. And by thinking about these quantum mechanical aspects and some other uh, features of black holes, people came up with this uh, conjecture that I, I, would, I like to sometimes call it the central dogma of quantum black holes. It's uh, like, you know, like there is a central dogma in biology, there is a central dogma of uh, quantum aspects of black holes, uh, which is that if you look at the black hole from outside, you can think of it as an ordinary quantum system, as an ordinary system. It obeys the laws of thermodynamics, it obeys the laws of quantum mechanics, and so on. Um, and it does so in a rather non-trivial way, in an intricate uh, way in which the uh, laws of uh, physics conspire to give a picture where this would be consistent. Um, and if you apply, if you have this solution like the one we discussed with uh, Churchill, um that contains, uh, there's a closely related solution where these two, two space-times that look completely disconnected are actually part of the same space-time. So you have a solution which looks like two black holes that are separated in space, but are connected through um, are connected through the interior. So they share a single interior. And um, the idea is that uh, if you apply this sort of central dogma separately to each black hole, so each black hole can be replaced by a quantum system, <clears throat> And then the peculiarity that produces the connection is, or the idea is that the connection would arise 
if uh, these two quantum systems are entangled with each other. So they have EPR or ensemble Oscar Ross entanglement. Um, and um, yeah, so that's a, that's an idea for what it's an interpretation, if you wish, of the Schwarzschild solution in light of uh, of this this results of Hawking and others about uh, quantum aspects of black holes. Um, and again, there the the fact that it is not traversable is good because you cannot send information using entanglement. So it's it's a consistency. I mean, it's consistent with this inter interpretation. Um, now. And, and people, well, we, we studied this relationship a lot to try to learn about black hole interiors, basically. That's how, how we should think about black hole interiors. And there are weird features about black hole interiors, such as this one, that two, two separate black holes can share the same interior, for example. Mm. Uh, and uh, so it's like an exotic system that we would like to study to, to understand better than black hole interiors. Um, now, uh, um, Okay, now the, the, the next development in this direction uh, came from an observation by, by paper by Gao, Jeffries, and Wall. Um, and they realized that if you introduce some interaction between these two black holes in the ambient space, um, you could get a signal to go through this wormhole. And since the signal is closely related to quantum teleportation, so if you have two quantum systems that are entangled, um, then by doing certain measurements uh, and sending qubits on one of them and sending classical information to the other, you could uh, you could send a qubit, uh, you could teleport a qubit. And in, in this gravity picture, the the qubit is really going through the wormhole. So you create, um, you do a certain operation using the information. So roughly speaking, what you do is you measure the Hawking radiation on one black hole. Um, and yeah, sorry, I should start from the beginning. You have the two entangled black holes. You send the qubit that you want to send into one of the black holes. Then you do um, you measure the Hawking radiation of that black hole. You send the information to the other. And by knowing that information, the, the person in the other black hole can send a negative energy pulse. It's something that uh, normally could not be done into a normal black hole. But if you, roughly speaking, the Hawking radiation is random. but if it is entangled with another one and you measure the other one, you know what is going to happen. It's like having inside information. It's like in the stock market. market. <laughs> it looks like a black hole if you don't know nothing, but if you have a friend inside the company and tells you something, then that... You <laughs> I would never do that. I would never. No, we'll, no. we'll cover economic trickery when we get to uh, the, the Higgs mechanism, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. But this is, um, this is similar in the sense that you can, uh, you can lower the energy of that black hole Go, you send in some negative energy pulse, and then you can get out of the from the interior this uh, qubit that you sent on the other side. So it's a, an interesting picture for what's happening with quantum teleportation, at least in this setup. Um, and yeah, so the these uh, papers that you mentioned were sort of developing this idea a little more, uh, just uh, looking for situations where very naturally you would have this interaction between these two black holes. That it would happen in uh, for ordinary four-dimensional black holes and so on. Um, and uh, so the, the, the crucial aspect in, in both, well, in, in all the solutions is to have two black holes that are relatively close to each other so that uh, there is some interaction between them. And so that 
this, this particular entangled state of two black holes is the ground state configuration of the two black holes. So that's uh, the quantum mechanical interpretation, if you wish. Um, or in terms of gravity, that you can form, uh, you can connect, uh, well, you have this connected wormhole, um, but, um, but you create some negative energy through some fields that propagate in this space-time. So space-time becomes um, topologically non-trivial. What it means is that it develops some kind of handle. So you have the two black holes that are like little holes in space, and you should con picture them as connected by a kind of hose that connects the two black holes. So you can have particles that go inside the hose and then come out in the space and then go in again. And um, the propagation of these particles creates some negative energy. So in the quantum mechanics, you can have negative energy, and that stabilizes the whole setup and makes it possible to, to have a traverse over wormhole. Now, these traverse over wormholes you, you build this way um, are consistent with causality. So what does that mean? That means that if you go through the wormhole, you come out on the other side later than you would have come out if you had stayed outside the wormhole. So they cannot be used for traveling faster than light. So um, in the science fiction literature, it's common to find uh, wormholes uh, where that are used to travel faster than light or tra travel to the, to the past, for example, and so on. Um, but uh, this, this we think are uh, deeply uh, inconsistent with the laws of physics. So, but this, so there, there are different things you can mean by laws of physics. So there are general principles of physics that were established in the beginning of the 20th century, like uh, general relativity, quantum mechanics, uh, quantum field theory. So these are, this is a kind of framework, very framework, general framework with certain solid principles. So, Particular theories that we have today obey these principles, uh, but they kept changing because we needed to add more particles. We needed to add lots of particles since the beginning of the 20th century. All the quarks, all the um, we now probably need to add dark matter particle and so on. Um, but we, whenever that was done, it was done within this framework. Um, so we can ask, uh, what is possible within this framework? So what is possible with ordinary, this is what I'm going to call ordinary matter by, or non-exotic matter. So doesn't doesn't mean the actual matter we have in nature, but it's matter that obeys these kinds of principles that we could in principle have perhaps, but we haven't detected yet, for example. Um, and this, uh, the idea is that with this kind of matter, you cannot produce uh, wormholes that allow you to travel faster than light. Um, and that's that's very good. It's actually an interesting theorem in uh, well that 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 this is not possible. It's, it wasn't completely proven, but several aspects of it were proven. And it's an interesting interplay between uh, positivity conditions of energy in relativistic quantum field theory um, and general relativity. I mean, at the level of geometry, you can imagine a geometry that uh, connects points that are far away. I mean, no, nobody forbids you from mm -hmm. writing down that geometry. But Einstein's theory is more than just uh, arbitrary geometries. It's, uh, it's geometries that obey a certain equation. It's called the Einstein equations. And the equation relates the shape of the geometry to uh, the amount of energy, or, yeah, the amount of energy present in this geometry, energy or matter, or matter density, etc. Um, and um, 
these shapes that would allow you to travel faster than light, they require a certain kind of negative energy, which is uh, not, not possible uh, in, under those circumstances. A certain small amount of negative energy is allowed by quantum mechanics, and it's what uh, we exploited in these solutions that we have discussed. Uh, and so, so they allow you to construct these this wormholes. Uh, it's interesting that you could have these configurations, which are, have topology different than the topology of four-dimensional flat space. Um, um, I, they seem difficult to build. So we only show that there are solutions. We don't know how uh, you could develop them into solutions. And one interesting aspect is that the, um, the, the, the first solution, the first paper you mentioned, mm -hmm. discusses these solutions um, in the context of uh, it could even be the standard model. So it uh, could be the, the matter that we know, but at very short distances. So distances that are, so black holes that are very, very tiny. I mean, those black holes would be extremely difficult to produce uh, by artificial or maybe natural means unless they were produced in the very early universe. Um, and that's... Um, one possibility. So, um, and those differ from the uh, um, the 2020 paper <clears throat> differs in that it's um, it's actually displaying a five or higher dimensional uh, background universe right. as opposed to the 2018 paper, which was a four dimensional right. universe. Can you comment on on why you? It seems it seems like we know we live in four dimensions. So why would right. we consider higher dimensions? Why, why can't we work, make it work in four dimensions, a humanly traversable wormhole in four dimensions? Right, right. So the, the construction we had in the 18 paper relied on the existence of uh, light matter, of, uh, some light matter fields. So matter fields, which are, let's say, almost massless. And we, we don't have such, uh, well, we have the photon in nature, but we also wanted some charged matter fields, and we, we don't have those. Uh, that, we don't have massless ones. We have the electron that's massive. And um, so the idea was to postulate that maybe we have some kind of dark sector. So a dark se sector would be some um, type of matter that we only interact with gravitationally, but not uh, directly. So in principle, it might be possible. Um, and postulating such that dark sector, we were asking whether it would be possible to a uh, wormhole that is big enough that a person could travel. Um, it was mostly as a fun project, so just to see what's uh, possible. Um, and um, there is these models that involve extra extra dimensions are kind of equivalent to a certain type of four-dimensional matter theory, or four-dimensional uh, very matter theory, massless matter. Um, and uh, when it's very strong interacting, it could be realized in terms of uh, an extra dimension. And these models were discussed in the past, so people uh, thought, oh, maybe there are extra dimensions. Um, and um, so you could have, uh, if the extra dimensions were flat, like flat space, they could have a size which is somewhat smaller than a millimeter. Um, well, no, now I think there is 50 microns is the, the current limit, so it's fairly smaller. But anyway, so that's uh, the current limit on the size of extra dimensions if they were flat. But Randall and Sundrum re realized, so to, to researchers, they, they realized that um, you could have this extra dimension could be actually have infinite infinite size as long as the space was curved. Um, and uh, so, so you have uh, the extra dimensional space is curved, uh, has negative curvature, and then the extra dimension is large. And uh, it's 
the physics of this problem is essentially equivalent to uh, adding uh, massless matter to four dimensional to four dimensions mm. so if you don't like to think in terms of four, five dimensions you can think in terms of four dimensions and in this setup um, you could uh, by making the size of that extra dimension large enough so for the experimental limit current experimental limit of 50 microns you could have in principle uh, traverse our wormhole mm -hmm. uh, which is large enough for a person to go through so let, let me just maybe we could discuss how big it should be for us to go through yeah um, now it's often said that uh, when we fall into a black hole uh, we die at the singularity because uh, the, the tidal forces or the forces of gravity will kill us but we could be falling into a black I mean if we fall into a stellar mass black hole for example so a black hole with the mass of the Sun which has size of order a few kilometers so if we fall into such a black hole uh, we are still bigger than the size of the black hole but we would be killed we would be killed before we get even to the horizon because we are we are very frail people we 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 are very sensitive to tidal forces and if uh, we are pushed from the head and the toes in different directions we might die so actually um, you, you need you need some black hole of order um, the size of the earth so the horizon should be of order the size of the earth in order in order for us to fall and not die at least at the horizon and for similar reasons in this these wormholes have to have a neck or a, an opening so I mentioned the host before connecting the two points in space-time which has a size which is bigger than the size of of the order of the size of the earth and uh, under those circumstances you could fall in and uh, not be killed by the tidal forces. Um, the tidal forces, the forces similar to the forces of tides that create the tides in, in the surface of the earth. Uh, yeah, on the earth. Um, anyway, so that so that requires pretty big uh, black holes. So that's uh, a little unfortunate that we are so frail. Um, and uh, this uh, mechanism that produces the wormholes is also uh, very well. It requires uh, some quantum mechanical effects, so it's not too efficient. So you can make wormholes, but they, are they will be separated. The travel time will be very long. So it will be uh, for the 10,000 10, uh, years. So that's the time it would take you to go through the wormhole, as seen by someone who remains outside the wormhole. Mm -hmm. Now, something quite fun about this is that if you, for, from the point of view of the person that goes through the wormhole, that time is much shorter. That time is about, uh, it's less than a second. Um, so um, it's a bit like the twins paradox. So in the twins, mm -hmm. twin paradox, there is uh, it, one of the twins uh, remains at rest, and, and the other one travels at very high speeds and then returns. Then the person who travels at high speed and returns is much younger than the person who stayed at rest. So this is some something similar happens here. The person who goes through the wormhole is much young, much younger than the person who uh, sits outside the wormhole. And what do you attribute the kind of fascination that people have if the time travel aspects, as you guys show, are really not possible in the classic sense, in the interstellar uh, movie sense, so to speak? Um, what, why do you think people are so fascinated in it? Why do you think that people use this as a, as a plot device so frequently uh, that it's almost become kind of a, a trope in a sense uh, that people really look look to wormholes to solve a lot of problems in in, in movie plot devices. Yeah, well, we, we 
I mean, the speed of light is uh, <laughs> it's tough. I mean, it doesn't allow us to go too far. I That's mean, right. They say it's not only a good idea, it's the law, right? Yeah, it's the law, and, and, uh, and it's, uh, well, it, it, I think authors like to go outside the, the realm of ordinarily established laws of physics. They usually the the statement is, oh, well, now we that's what we think now, maybe in the future we'll realize it, there is a way to go around it. And that might well be true. So it might well be true that we find a way to go around. But going around this, it's a very serious change to the laws of physics. So I, I, I personally would bet very strongly against. Actually, I remember that the, a few years ago, there was an experiment claiming that the neutrinos travel faster than Yeah, light. the opera experiment. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, so I met one of my neighbors, and so oh, you see, you, I, uh, you know, relativity is wrong, and so on. <laughs> so I said, okay, fine. I, I bet you thousand dollars that uh, this experiment will go away. <laughs> he didn't want to take the bet. <laughs> <laughs> Financially wise, uh, <laughs> uh, and yeah, I mean, it is possible. Everything is possible, but uh, right. there are some things that are more unlikely than uh, than others so yeah a lot of times we talk on this channel and we have talked about you know theories of everything which i definitely want to get into uh with you as well i can't miss the opportunity to discuss it but you know oftentimes this kind of uh perception that such things are not really falsifiable or not testable and so mm -hmm. why should we kind of expend time energy money uh, which is so finite in in value in 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 amount, but infinite in value. What what are kind of some of the uh, motivations to study these things? When you know, for example, some of the criticism you know on the yeah. internet of the of the recent tra humanly traversable wormhole theory is that you know we don't even know if the Randall syndrome cosmology model five or whatever even exists, and there's no evidence for that. So why study you know kind of an, an edifice that's built upon something which may not even exist? Right, right, right. So here, here we we are exploring not the the things that nature as exists, but possible natures that are consistent with the laws of the general principles of physics, of general relativity, special relativity, etc., quantum mechanics, um, with the goal of just understanding what is possible. The, the goal is not so it's not so much to go and build and look for this wormhole. It's just well. That paper was just a fine exercise, but the main main goal is to I think the main goal is to understand black holes better, quantum aspects of black holes, mm -hmm. uh, with the goal of understanding why, well, how quantum gravity works. So black holes are an interesting problem because they force us to think about quantum <clears throat> gravity in interesting ways. And, and, and if um, does that not presuppose that there exists a uh, a theory of everything? In other words, is it mandatory? Well, certainly it seems that um, wormholes, at least non-simply uh, connected regions, are permissible in classical GR, but certainly to have the wormhole as described uh, in the paper seems to rely on, on, on quantum processes, as you, as you yeah. very yeah. rightfully explained. But, um, but I want to ask maybe a deeper question, which is uh, kind of about your opinion on theories of everything in general, which is that, you know, do we need a theory of everything? Is right. it mandatory right. that we have yeah. one? I, I don't like to match the word theory of everything. Yeah, me neither. Uh, <laughs> I didn't use it, the, no, but I, I think what we need is a theory of quant what I, we would call quantum gravity. So the quantum mechanics of space-time, or a theory of quantum space-time. 
And this is needed because the current theories do not explain what happens in certain circumstances, like what happens at the very beginning of the Big Bang or what happens in the interior of black holes. And um, we would need that theory to really put all these principles that we discussed at the beginning of the 20th century together. And uh, if you call that everything, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, of everything that we learned in the 20th century, general relativity and quantum physics. Um, the, the formalism of quantum field theory came from uh, putting together quantum mechanics and special relativity. And I think we'd like to put in general relativity. And, and this is a very, very constrained structure. So the question, I mean, one question that uh, I think that the fact that we need this theory is clear. Uh, you could question whether we will ever get this theory without doing experiments. Um, so I think this is a valid question. Now, why, why do we think we might get a theory like this is that, well, we have some examples of candidate theories that are mostly like, we should really think of them as theories under construction, like string theory and so on, which, uh, which have uh, lots of mathematical intricacies and, and are put together, managed to put together gravity and quantum mechanics. Um, we don't know whether it's the right theory for nature. Uh, we don't know if that's the correct framework to correct theory special theory to describe nature, but the goal, I think, is to is that by thinking about those theories, you might even be able to abstract some principles that uh, could be used to describe nature. Mm -hmm. um, and um, in the process, people discuss, discover all kinds of relationships between these theories and mathematics and other areas of physics and might uh, even... Uh, and, 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 and we now think that gravity and quantum mechanics are connected in, in many different ways. And that, so perhaps a provocative idea is that you might be able to build a little toy universe in a lab. So Yeah, uh, yeah. Zia Morali, a friend <laughs> of mine, has written a book about a big bang in a little room, which is a wonderful little book. Um, I want to, uh, before I turn to questions from the audience, I do just want to follow up and just, I can't resist. And if you'll indulge me, you know, I mean, it's not so often I have a, a great physicist to chat with uh, live and ask questions of a, of a not personal nature, but I'd love to get your opinion on why are there so many different theories of everything? I mean, there's Wolfram has one. Our mutual friend Eric Weinstein has had one. Uh, Garrett Lisi. I mean, they seem to proliferate, and these are very, very you know legitimate uh, ideas. Some of which are are very creative. Stephen Wolfram has a completely uh, different approach from the geometric uh, approaches of people like Lisi and Weinstein. Uh, what do you attribute, first of all, the the upsurgence in interest in new and theories of everything? Um. Well, I guess. It's a natural frontier, and uh, people have uh, different ideas for how things should go. Some some ideas are more developed than others, uh, and uh, and have had. Uh, I mean, yeah. Like, of course, the final arbiter of any idea is uh, to make a definite uh, experimental prediction that you know could be falsified, and or basically a prediction that you could go and check. That this theory uh, has, and there, there have been no predictions like this for from any of the theories. Um, but uh, along the way, some some theories have had more uh, predict, more let's say mathematical predictions or predictions for other areas of physics or some interesting, more interesting structure. Um, and some are consistent with the, these principles of the 20th century physics that I discussed, and some are not. So 
Um, for example, it's not clear whether Wolfram's uh, ideas are consistent with the principles of, of relativity and causality and so on. Uh, time doesn't know. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, so um, yeah, I think uh, the for those of us that uh, work on uh, string inspired ideas, the, what we like is that uh, it's a theory with well-defined rules and you, well, at least in some regimes uh, where you can do calculations and it's compatible with these general principles of uh, 20th century physics. Mm -hmm. And when we look at uh, some of the questions that are coming up about connections between quantum field theory, one of my listeners uh, whose name is Rust in Peace, who is a frequent contributor on the channel, he's asking uh, whether or not the black hole information paradox shows that quantum field theory is incomplete. In other words, do we need a fundamentally new theory uh, to merge quantum mechanics and GR as illustrated by the black hole paradox? Yes, I think I think I think that's right. Um, but it's incomplete when when gravity is dynamical. So when the effects of uh, when the effects of the finiteness of the Newton constant is is, is important. So. Mm -hmm. And then uh, others are asking about, you know, the perceived, I get this a lot, you know, failure of string theory to, you know, come up with this. But I think I think you've already sort of addressed this, that uh, it may be sort of uh, too much to ask for or maybe not phrasing the meaning of the word theory of everything. And, and maybe there's too much expectation of things like uh, string theory. So what's your current appraisal of the of the state of affairs in string theory, for example? Um, well, I think uh, string theory, I view it mainly as a candidate theory for quantum gravity, and uh, it's a theory that's been fairly developed and has a very interesting mathematical structure and has led to um, interesting connections between quantum field theory and gravity or between different quantum field theories and quantum field theory and condensed matter and uh, quantum mechanics and thinking about yeah, quantum mechanics and space-time in general. And if, um, but yeah, the fact that there isn't a concrete experimental prediction is a problem. And uh, I think uh, we we understood that the landscape of possible, that, that there was a roadmap for experimental predictions in the late 80s, which was, well, we'll, we'll have, we have this very nice 10 dimensional theory and we'll find the internal space on which uh, it's compactified, so, so six dimensions are small. We'll find the possible shapes. There will be a finite, small number of possible shapes. We'll, uh, we'll find which is the one that gives the standard model, and we'll be able to calculate things. That, that was the roadmap. Um, that roadmap turned out to be, uh, well, it was more complicated than expected, because there were many, many possible shapes. And many. the, the, the number was so big that uh, it, it's very difficult to study them them all or study them in a, in a way that you could really make a concrete prediction. Um, and the, the current thinking is that the, the just in, in to, to explain or accommodate the cosmological constant, you need to, to, uh, to exploit this complexity. And, and so, so it, the, the typical, like the typical so if you take an off-the-shelf uh, internal space, uh, you will get the cosmological constant, which is too large. So the idea, that the current idea, well, among all the one, there are so many that one will have the right cosmological constant. But that also makes it very difficult to 
make a concrete prediction. But I mean, people are some people are are, are still um, well. They, they are definitely many people are trying to make statistical predictions. So maybe you don't know exactly which of the vacuum where we live in or which, but making perhaps statistical uh, predictions of what that landscape. It's sometimes called the string landscape of what that landscape looks like. I personally think that also this uh, connection between gravity and and quantum mechanics maybe can lead to a different kind of prediction, a different kind of uh, connection between the idea, these ideas and, and the rest of physics uh, and, and concrete physics, uh, which is via perhaps quantum computers and maybe uh, quantum experiments in the lab of building something, some systems, some complex, the idea is that very complex uh, systems uh, behave uh, in a way that can be described by a certain space-time. It's not our four-dimensional space-time, but maybe some auxiliary two-dimensional space-time and so on. And there are people thinking more actively about uh, how to get these ideas to, to work. Um, and so this is, again, something that people you know, do in string theory do, but uh, it's a different angle on the connection. And uh, kind of an allied effect to that is uh, located you know, behind my upper uh, right shoulder over here. I'm pointing to a couple of CMB uh, balls. I, I want to uh, bring up an allied question, which is uh, related to the multiverse. And you mentioned the landscape. I want to talk a little bit about that um, <clears throat> in our uh, remaining 15, 20 minutes that we have. Uh, so I want to read something to you from uh, a while back in Quantum Magazine. Which, uh, which talked about the study of non-Gaussianities. And in mm -hmm. Quantum Magazine, they say, uh, the study of rigorous study of non-Gaussianities took off in 2002 when Wal Maldacena, a revered monk-like theorist at the Institute for Advanced Study, calculated what's known as a gravitational floor, the minimum number of triangles and other shapes that are guaranteed to exist in the sky due to the unavoidable effect of gravity during cosmic inflation. Cosmologists had been struggling to calculate the gravitational floor for more than a decade since it would provide a concrete goal for experimentalists. If the floor is reached and still no triangles are detected, Maldacena explained, then inflation is wrong. So uh, I want to ask you, because I don't, I actually interviewed a real monk last week, and uh, I have to say, you guys have some, somewhat similar, you know, countenances. You're very, uh, very revered and very reserved, uh, but uh, I don't know if the monk-like attribute is, is accurate. But, but leaving that aside, um, uh, behind me are these balls. I'm going to go get one while you're on the screen. But can you first talk a little bit about what is a non-Gaussianity in the cosmological context? And I'll bring up uh, some visuals for the audience while uh, you'll indulge me. Yeah, so the uh, an interesting fact about the universe is that it's very close to uniform on lo at long distances. But another interesting fact is that it's not perfectly uniform. There were some primordial inhomogeneity. So it was, to first approximation, homogeneous, but with tiny little inhomogeneities that I guess you've uh, been studying for your, your, your career. Uh, and that's a map of the, those inhomogeneities as we see them through the CMB. Um, these inhomogeneities, it's believed that they were produced through quantum effects. They were due to quantum fluctuations during the beginning of inflation. Um, and so they are random. So quantum fluctuations are random. But in quantum theory, the, um, the, the randomness has some pattern. So, um, so there are different patterns of randomness. Uh, 
And so the simplest pattern is so-called Gaussian pattern, where each each region could sort of fluctuate independently of the others, roughly speaking. It's not exactly this, but um, each, let's say, wave fluctuates differently from the others. And that's like the simplest pattern, the bell curve, the Gaussian distribution. Um, but in, in actual theories, uh, actual theories are interacting and the, the fluctuation in one place cre creates some decreases or increases another type of fluctuation in a similar region. So, um, so you have some non-Gaussian effects. So some non-Gaussian means that there were some interactions between the waves. You could view this as waves or fluctuations in the geometry of the shape of the universe. Um, and the, this, uh, these deviations from Gaussianity gives us very deep information about the interactions that were present during the inflationary times, during the times of inflation when, when these fluctuations were produced. Um, and so the simplest interaction that we had was interaction of gravity. So that if you have a fluctuation that created, created an overdensity, okay, it created some gravitational potential and then some other fluctuation would, would look different. And that's uh, the so-called gravitational floor. So it's the minimum amount of non deviations from the Gaussianity that you would need if inflation is correct, uh, at least, or at least single field inflation. Um, but in principle, there could be larger effects due to other particles that could uh, could have existed during that time. Uh, and in some some ways, the early inflation is like a particle detector or a particle collider that uh, you. You, you, you create all these particles uh, that uh, well, could be created. So, so the universe at the time was expanding rapidly, and there's an effect similar to the effect of Hawking radiation that we discussed before that creates this uh, quantum effect, that creates this, uh, these waves, these fluctuations. And it could also create other particles uh, which have uh, mass proportional to the effective temperature of these fluctuations. And the, um, so if you created those particles, it could also imprint all kinds of interesting patterns uh, in the sky. I mean, so far, so far, no non-Gaussianities were detected. So uh, that is, uh, so it's very, very close to Gaussian, but still there are a couple of orders of magnitude to go to, to, to get to this floor somehow, to this minimal amount. And I guess there are very interesting experiments going on trying to, to calculate this to measure, I mean, to experimentally measure this non-Gaussianities uh, better. Yeah, that's right. And uh, it's certainly a hot topic, not only the uh, the actual pursuit of non-Gaussianities, which is there are very few ways we can actually access this enormous particle accelerator, as you call it, which is a, a nice way to think about the extremely early universe. But uh, one of them is potentially through uh, cosmic microwave backgrounds polarization and in doing so we make the hypothesis that uh, if inflation took place there will be this stochastic background of primordial gravitational waves not the late time gravitational waves detected recently fairly recently on cosmic time scales by Lee's, uh, by LIGO uh, but actually we could detect a uh, a background suffusing the early universe uh, unfortunately, these are kind of like no-go theorems in some sense. And what appeals to me, and I should take a step back, what I liked about the non-Gaussianity effect is that it gives another, uh, it gives a prediction that's a lower limit. So I'm kind of sick of upper limits. We've had so many upper limits in physics for so long. 
that it's nice sometimes to get an, a lower limit. So let me explain to my audience who might not be familiar. An upper limit says that a signal can be no larger than a certain amount. So it says that the Higgs boson could be no larger than you know, three, you know, 300 or, or, or whatever GeV in mass. Uh, but a lower limit allows you to say that such a quantity exists and it's bigger than a certain value. And in fact, that value can be bigger than zero. So for example, we know that neutrinos have mass. We have an upper limit on the mass of neutrinos from neutrino oscillation experiments. We also uh, know that there's a lower limit on the, uh, on the mass of the neutrino. Uh, sorry, we know the lower limit exists from, from neutrino oscillations. We know the upper limit exists from, from collider experiments, from direct detection experiments, and from cosmology. And so we're kind of coming at the target from both ends. It's not enough to say I'm lower than, you know, 600 meters tall uh, and I'm bigger than one micron tall. What you'd like to have is a very tight range between the upper and lower limits. But when you have a lower limit, it gives a target for an experimentalist like me. I always say I'm just a simple experimental astrophysicist. You've got to break it down into. And there are very few things like that. We know that uh, we don't know that gravitational waves exist um, in the primordial sense. We know that they exist in the late universe. Um, but uh, but your your uh, work on non-Gaussianities really provides sort of a no-go theorem, which could be used in in uh, combination with the primordial B-mode search. But there's a problem in that I think that we've we've basically hit a point of diminishing returns. When you wrote that paper in the early 2000s, that was pre-WMAP. And now we have not only the beautiful, phenomenal, world-changing you know, results of WMAP, but also Planck. And it's very hard to do much better in the CMB's temperature. So I wonder, you know, how much better can we do to, you know, in, the, in your opinion, before we hit this floor, which is known as cosmic variance, uh, it, beyond which we can't really improve? In other words, might your lower limit... Uh, also be an upper limit in the sense that we'll never be able to detect it because of fundamental intrinsic variances in the in the uh, pattern of, of fluctuations in the microwave background. Um, well, that's, I think, a subject you probably know better than me. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I'm, I'm told by the experts that with the, the current angular resolution that you could get the CMB with and so on. Uh, you just don't have enough uh, power to get to this floor. Yeah, I, I think we're getting very close. I mean, it's a, yeah. yeah, diminishing returns in terms of noise level and angular resolution. Uh, but there may be other triangles in, in terms of um, large-scale structure. Is that a possibility to look for non-Gaussianities? Yeah, so large-scale structure is uh, something that would allow you to go a little further because you see Basically, one difference is that the, the CMB map is two-dimensional and large scale structure could be a three-dimensional map. And there's been also some more futuristic ideas, like you lo looking at uh, the so-called 21 centimeter uh, hydrogen emission lines to, to see uh, the matter distribution also in the early universe and to, again, make a map uh, which is three-dimensional. And uh, I mean, that, that, that might be the best hope, but well, people... Yeah, this is further into the future. We, we don't know that, that 21 centimeter signal, primordial signal is really there. I want to ask you a question that's maybe a meta question. When you make a prediction about this, how difficult is it to separate your own natural curiosity and feeling of ownership over this theory? I mean, I think we could both agree it'll be very challenging to detect a humanly traversable wormhole. Uh, but yeah. when you make predictions such as these no-go theorems for inflation, 
or the many other contributions you've made to physics, how much, how tempting is it as a theorist to really advocate, you know, for the pursuit of your particular theoretical right. models right. and, 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 and well, see confirmation in them wherever they occur? Yeah, yeah. I think, I think there are theories that uh, propose models, uh, like there are more, more phenomenologies that produce models. I wouldn't call this humanly traversable model as a particular theory that I want to see confirmed in experiment because I think it's very unlikely that uh, the universe is described by the Randall syndrome 2 model and so on. Um, I view mass a little more as a theoretical fun exercise, a bit of science fiction. <laughs> I told Lisa Randall that I was going to write a science fiction paper. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should. That would be another side of the monk known as Maldesena. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, I, I, I tend to work on things w which are not predicting specific models, but trying to find general principles and uh, yeah, general ideas, exploring uh, these more general features. Um, but uh, yeah, I, for example, with, with Nima, we discussed the, the possibility of seeing extra particles during inflation and so on. Uh, through this cosmological collider would be really fun if that was seen. I mean, but it would be, uh, but well, I, again, I, I don't think it's uh, necessarily likely. We didn't, we didn't think that it was the most likely scenario. Right. So uh, I think part of uh, the theorist um, work is to figure out where interesting signals could lie um, mm -hmm. or where you should look for interesting signals. They might not be necessarily the most likely signals, but if they were present, uh, they would tell you a lot. So you should make sure there are certain signals you should make sure not to miss at least. Uh, um, and uh, yeah, that's uh, yeah. part of what I'm doing. But some some people are more more practically oriented and want to see what is actually the data is saying and the, 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 the yeah what can be extracted from actual data that you, for example, are taking. Right. And to what extent, you know, if you were kind of a director of experimental research, how, how would you choose to prioritize just on a selfish level your many enthusiasms that you have? Um, how would you, you know, rate the likelihood of the existence of these Randall syndrome? I mean, you obviously say that there's, you know, not, not terribly likely and they're almost in the realm of science fiction as are wormholes, but inflation is held in the multiverse, the string landscape, right. swampland. Right. These are all held by, you know, there's an awful lot of energy devoted at right. most universities right. to this right. pursuit. So how do you, how would you, or if you were the director of all research in physics on planet Earth uh, from your monastery, how would you, <laughs> how would you allocate this very precious limited amount of time or really attention? Mm -hmm. um, well, you, you have to decide where, where well, I think this run this 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 Randall syndrome model, the particular version that uh, we considered, I think it's uh, highly unlikely. Mm -hmm. um, in general, the Randall syndrome idea is an interesting idea. Uh, not, not not this particular model, but the, the one that was trying to explain the hierarchy model, and should be explained should should be explored. Has the nice feature that is simple, relatively simple to explore relative to other particle physics scenarios. Um, and it's a it's slightly different scenario than the ones typically people consider like new particles structure, which is basically similar to the one we already had. Um, and so it's it's worth looking for 
it, it produces weird signals, so <laughs> it's interesting to, uh, to look at. And, and people looked at it in mainly in the run-up to the LHC as possible things that the uh, LHC could see. Um, now the LHC didn't see any of them, but it, it was important that uh, it looked for all this, all, all the possible things. So there was a, an era before the experiment where I think it was important to look for exotic scenarios, look for uh, I don't know possibilities like supersymmetry, look, look for various possibilities, and well then you do the experiment and you make sure you don't miss any any possible signal. So I think something that is important is uh, some diversity in, in approaches, in various ideas. So I think uh, if you ask me what science policy should be, you should find different uh, bar various ideas, just in theory, various different ideas. Um, you said just in theory, or do you mean? No, no, in, in theory, this is a very important principle. In experiment, uh, it's a little more tricky because uh, sometimes you need a critical mass of people following uh, definite, uh, you know, definite experiment and uh, you know, there are many, many people studying cosmic microwave uh, physics, and I think it's a very interesting, very interesting topic. And I, I feel, yeah, so now one of the frontiers is the study of the primordial fluctuations. I find this the most interesting aspects of uh, CMB. I mean, CMB physics has many more aspects, uh, yes, as you know very well, like measuring neutrino masses, I don't know that you mentioned, and I don't know, the physics of early clusters, etc. And but uh, yeah, this 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 discovery of uh, primordial fluctuations is, is very interesting for what it says about the universe, the consequences it has for us. I mean, we, we are here thanks to these primordial fluctuations in a way. And um, so I think it's a conceptually very interesting area. I mean, very interesting result that uh, people should know. And I don't know, it's uh, fun for the public to know. Uh, again, you could say, well, this doesn't, give any technological application and so on but i think it's a fundamental scientific thing that is interesting for for us to know uh, it has a cult very important cultural value mm -hmm. um, and speaking of cultural value there's other ideas and you know there's an approach to let a thousand theories bloom so to speak um, so i'm getting questions about your um, impressions of alternates to inflation obviously you've spent a lot of time thinking about inflation but um, what if inflation didn't happen? What if uh, the models of your nearby neighbor over across the way and Jadwin Hall, Paul Steinhardt, who's a friend of the right. show, uh, the sort of cyclic bouncing models, or Roger Penrose, who's been also been on the show, discussing conformal cyclic cosmology. What are your thoughts uh, on those on those models, alternatives to an inflationary story? Um, well, I, I should say that I think it, it's it's interesting to try to find alternatives to try to find alternatives to inflation. Um, and I, we, we were discussing with some students some, some alternatives. And But I have to say that none of the alternatives reach the level of precision and rigor, just even theoretical rigor uh, that inflation has. So inflation is an idea where you take the simplest idea, uh, Starobinsky model, and you can do the calculation of fluctuations in that model was done, uh, and um, and you get some prediction, and, and uh, you know the, the prediction doesn't change. So it's not that the new theories come and they change the prediction, and it depends on exactly how you do the calculation. Now there is a well-defined way to do the calculation, and that's it. 
in these other models, it's unclear what the rules are for doing the calculation. So the models have um, an uncalculable element, so some level of assumption in in the model itself. So you say, well, you start with some well-defined process. There is a point where an unknown physics happens, where you need a quantum theory of gravity, so some theory we don't completely have, and then uh, you make some assumption, and then you get some prediction. But the prediction changes with the assumption, and maybe the assumption changed. And well, I mean, it it doesn't mean that those models are all wrong. I mean, maybe there could be an idea, the conceptual idea might be correct, but it's certainly not calculated. It doesn't have the level of uh, calculational, even already internally, the calculational rigor that inflation has. So as a theory, uh, they, they are behind in that sense. Um, and well, in, in yeah, comparing to experiment, well, the, many of these models were designed to uh, agree with experiment. <laughs> uh, at least experiment so far, but yeah, they, some of them make uh, different predictions, so you can... Right, yeah. yeah, I guess the question is attention. You know, there's such a dominance in most departments have, you know, uh, cosmologists where they're working on inflation if they have, you know, early universe cosmology. Uh, we have multiple people here at San Diego. We're very fortunate. My colleagues, Raphael right. Flauger, Dan Green, and others. Right. Um, but but thinking about alternatives and how difficult it is to get traction. Imagine you do come up with some theory and you are working more or less. I mean, my, the way I always put it is people like Eric Weinstein or people like Roger Penrose cannot get traction, you know, and not have graduate students and sort of people working on it. How how easy is it or, or how, how does the kind of monopoly effect, does it does it take place where a theory is so dominant, it's so attractive that it basically sucks out the oxygen from alternatives that may prove superior had they had the intellectual capital behind them? Um, well, I, I mean, it, it is a problem if everyone does the same thing, but I think there is an incentive for people to come up with another theory that is a competitor. Um, um, but that is, it has to be a serious competitor in the sense that uh, at least it has to be internally, internally somewhat at least calculable or and, and there are and there are people working on some alternatives. It's not. I mean, there was a paper today <clears throat> about some other alternative theory. So, um, I I think it's uh, well. I, th I think people there are people proposing alternative scenarios. But if the alternative scenario is very vague, it doesn't get traction because you yeah you don't know what what's the next step or what. Uh, I mean, it's good to have in mind and my my feeling is that perhaps uh, someone working in some problems in you know quantum gravity or gravity in general might have an idea for a slightly for a different scenario um, uh, perhaps and then that would be reasonable and would lead to either different yeah well at least it has to agree with the predictions have been checked but uh, experimentally i mean uh, the, the scaling bar the, the nearly scaling invariant spectrum of fluctuations and so on um but um yeah, it could have lead to other predictions. I think it's interesting to come up with different theories. I mean, historically, for example, people, uh, Brands and Dickey came up with this alternative theory of gravity, uh, where there is also scalar force and so on. And that played the, I mean, that had the advantage of being a theoretically well-defined theory. And then you could use it to compare, you know, experiments against uh, 
you, you take GR and this other theory, general relativity and this other theory, and you could compare them and, and see what, what you get. So uh, I, I feel, yeah. Yeah, I want to then uh, turn towards uh, a completely different direction, which is your paper uh, entitled The uh, Symmetry and Simplicity of the Laws of Physics and the Higgs Boson, where you used uh, theories of economics as an, as an analog to help mm -hmm. uh, people understand a, an approach to um, how, the, how this very complex uh, notion, so-called Higgs mechanism, could be understood in terms of a monetary or economic analogy uh, right. And that was building on, as you cite, you know, the work of uh, my friends Pia Malali and Eric Weinstein uh, mm -hmm. in the um, sort of what they consider, and, and they've talked to me about this as sort of an upgrade of differential calculus. Uh, and, and I want to ask you, are there other applications of gauge theory? I mean, if you ask people, they might have heard of calculus, uh, not the kind on, on my teeth or something, but they might have heard of calculus. They might know what a derivative is or an integral, but almost none of them know what a gauge you know, theory is. So first of all, um, what is a gauge theory? Why is it useful to physicists? And are there other analogs that could be uh, used to either understand gauge theory as you use economics based on, you know, Pia and Eric's work, but also uh, to extend this to other fields where, you know, people like me might not see the connection between gauge theory and some other analog in the physical world? Um. Yeah, so gauge theory is basically a theory where you introduce some redundancies that help you uh, understand, the, that help you describe the theory, but that they are not do not reflect the physics or they're not real. So you insert, you, you produce something which is uh, kind of conventional, and uh, you, but at the end of the day, it's not the it's, it doesn't reflect reality. Um, an example is well the gauge potential of electromagnetism. So the, both the, the electric potential and magnetic potentials that we discussed for electromagnetism, they are not uh, they are not physical. You can shift them by constants. You can shift them by some certain particular functions. And uh, what's really physical are the electric and magnetic fields. Um, and electromagnetism is a gauge gauge theory in this sense. And Many of the theories of particle physics are also gauge theories, so it's a very important type of theory that we we use to describe physics. Um, and um, yeah, so the this economic analogy is based on uh, thinking about um, it's an analogy between uh, economics and electromagnetism, and uh, it uh, well should I describe it or yeah? yeah. So maybe no, please do yeah. Yeah. So the basic idea is to think about um, currency. So pe people uh, sometimes, well, so for example, dollars, right? We measure things in dollars. But if someone decided to change the value of the dollar, say, let's say people tomorrow, they decide that, uh, well, the hundred dollars of today will be valued uh, one new dollar of tomorrow, let's say. We, we could invent a different name, let's say one. Well, one peso, let's say. <laughs> well, one uh, peso, yes. One, we call well, them one pesos. They, they could just ch change the number of zeros and define a new unit of currency. But if all the salaries adjust appropriately and all the exchange rates with other currencies in the world adjust appropriately, that change doesn't affect anybody. And uh, doesn't. Uh, it's just a change in the units we use to measure what, the value of things. 
And I come from a country in Argentina where this happened many times. So many times they took a few zeros out of the currency um, through this type of process. Um, now, that's a, an example of a gauge symmetry. That's a, something that doesn't change how rich you are because you change the number of zeros you have in the currency. Um, uh, now, there, there's some other more physical information in the uh, more real information in the exchange rates between different countries. So, um, but not exactly the exchange rates between two countries because if you have the exchange rate only between two countries, uh, if any one of them changes the currency, that the particular nominal value of the exchange rate will also change. Um, so when you change the currency units. But if you have um, the exchange rates between three different countries, and imagine them arranged in the vertex of a triangle, and so you have the exchange rate between any of the two countries along the edges of the triangle, then uh, each individual's exchange rate depends on the on the currency units of each one. But imagine you travel between the three countries in a, in a circle. The net gain that you get by exchanging those exchange rates, um, that's uh, independent of the currency units. So if you gain a factor of two or a factor of 1.1 when you go around in one way or you lose a factor, of, you know, you get a factor of 0.09, I mean, 0.09. Um, that is uh, really physical. And that's what in physics we call a magnetic field. So um, it's analogous to a magnetic field. Now, if, if you had a situation like this where you can make money by going around these uh, three countries, then you would have speculators that buy one currency, sell it, and so on. And now, normally, this wouldn't happen if we were in equilibrium, or but um, you would think that the exchange rates would adjust themselves so that this doesn't happen. But imagine for a second that the exchange rates are arbitrary and you could make money by doing this. Then you would have speculators that go around this, uh, these three countries. Now, this is what happens in nature when you have a, an electron. So an electron goes around the magnetic field. So you have a magnetic field, the electron goes around in a circle. And so the electron is a bit like those speculators that are trying to make money. Um, and um, yeah, so that's uh, an example. And and yeah, so you can have fun, some fun with this example and you can uh, assume some behavior for the people who set the exchange rates and the speculators and so on and get the Maxwell equations, etc. Um, I mean, this is not too surprising given that Maxwell himself got the Maxwell equations from a mechanical model. And we think uh, we don't have that particular mechanical model that uh, Maxwell had, but there are many microscopic models that could give rise to Maxwell's equations. Um, this is just one of them. Um, now, the, the but in, in actual economics, the um, we, we are in sort of like a Higgs phase of electromagnetism. It's analogous to a, a situation where the electromagnetism is spontaneously broken. And because the prices of ordinary goods that we can take between one country and the next is analogous to the Higgs, uh, the Higgs field. Um, so like we could have a certain quant certain thing like gold or oil or you know bananas that we can take between different countries, and uh, so the speculators could also commerce in this uh, quantities, and um, the prices of these quantities uh, are um, uh, well are, are certainly arbitrary. They depend on the monetary units, but we could um, we could set our monetary units in terms of those prices, so we can some all the countries could be say, well, we measure everything in terms of the price of bananas anyway. And uh, that's, uh, 
then the exchange rates between different countries would become more meaningful. Um, and um, yeah, so well, that's that's roughly the the analogy. I go on on it on this. And then, are there other you know kind of approaches that where gauge theory might not be uh, widely appreciated as a you know potential <clears throat> a potential under you know way to understand to understand something? Well, yeah, I, yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't know. So you are asking me to find the other analogies where <laughs> I don't know of another one that is as close as uh, economic man. Um, yeah, and then of course with the Higgs, you make or electroweak force. You, you talk about you know spheres replacing circles. I think that's delightful and uh, an interesting extension of the work. Um, that we discussed. I want to talk uh, just in the final few minutes. If you if you still have a little bit more time, we'll finish up soon. Uh, a couple more questions from people uh, yeah. in the in the chat room. How 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 is it possible that by adding uh, these dimensions, it seems a little reminiscent of you know Kaluza Klein, etc. Mm -hmm. So what what's the difference between a physical dimension which we have no evidence of existing and sort of a mathematical dimension where we can add things at will, even though they may not exist in, in, uh, in, in reality. Um, well, a physical dimension is some dimension where some physics can happen. So, uh, you know, a particle can move in the extra dimensions, gravity can extend to the extra dimensions and so on. So that's what we normally call a physical dimension. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure what the mathematical dimension is. I mean, it, it, of course, uh, the concept of many dimensions in math uh, makes sense, and uh, it could be applied to, depends on what your mathematical application is. So, for example, people who think about, uh, you know, recognizing language, artificial intelligence for language, think of words as vectors in a higher dimensional space and stuff like this. So this is some other application of the idea of the dimension that has nothing to do with right. And gauge just, you know, being analogous vocabulary lookup table between different cultures or languages. Yeah. Interesting. Um, a few more questions uh, from from both me and my audience. Uh, so one involves uh, you're at this very a little bit less technical now, if you'll indulge us. So uh, you're at the one of the most storied institutions uh, in the annals of all of science, the uh, Institute for Advanced Study. Uh, what is sort of your daily life like there? Is it all you know contemplation or what, what's a, a day in the life of of besides your six hours of, of prayer, fasting every day as a monk, what, <laughs> what, what's a day look like for you, uh, Dr. Maldesena? Well, I think my day is similar to, to the days in, of university researchers. Uh, we normally we go come to our offices. We look we look at the papers that came out the previous night. We we discuss with our our colleagues. We maybe are working on some papers. We do calculations. Uh, as a theorist, we spend a lot of time discussing calculations and math and uh, you know different approaches to actually doing certain calculations. Uh, there is, of course, maybe some discussion of more conceptual things, um, but that's what we mostly spend our days on. There, we go to talks, presentations, and the like. Uh, and then, uh, in terms of. Um you know, kind of future things that you're interested in. Uh, what's sort of the near term looking like for you uh, in terms of research directions, maybe students and uh, advisories? Yeah. So I, I currently we're we're all work we're all mainly working on 
my group working on uh, aspects of black holes, quantum aspects of black holes, trying to understand what the black hole interior is, understanding better the information paradox. And, uh, there, there was uh, recently very interesting progress on understanding how the information comes out in Hawking radiation um, in uh, papers by Bennington, uh, but by various research groups. And, uh, and yeah, so that's a very exciting development in the last couple of years. And so I've been working mostly on that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so uh, the last question that I have, let me just scan the chat section here. We've got 100 plus people in the chat section. A lot of these have been have been asked. So I think we've covered most of the questions from the audience. I'm going to finish up with two questions for you that I ask in some version or another. I ask uh, most, if not all, of my guests. And that uh, first question kind of relates to uh, the, the far future of, uh, of humanity. You know, hopefully you live to be you know, many. Well, first of all, I want to ask you. Actually, I, I don't. I don't get this opportunity very often. If I could give you a, one of my kids is working on a pill, which he calls the never dying pill, uh, which would allow the uh, the the ingester, whoever eats it, to live forever, but no one else on the entire planet would live forever. I want to ask you, Juan, would you take such a pill to live forever as you are right now with everything you know? You can't take anyone with you, not even me. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, probably. Yes. Okay. And the next question revolves around something that in Hebrew is known as an ethical will. So Alfred Nobel left the famous will, which endowed a prize that bears his name. But the will, in addition to recognizing uh, discoveries and inventions in physics, chemistry, etc., was meant also to benefit all mankind. So to have some benefit towards Mm -hmm. the human species. And so in that way, it was what was known as an ethical will. It had more than just a monetary, financial, tangible purpose and, and, and outcome of it. I want to ask you, if you were to write an ethical will, what kind of wisdom or, or things, knowledge that you've obtained in your life would you want to pass on uh, separate completely from your, your uh, financial material will? Well, the the importance of collaboration, of uh, truth seeking in general, um, I think uh, these are <laughs> important principles. And uh, do you see yourself primarily as an educator, as a researcher, as a mentor, uh, a student? How do you how do you think of yourself, and what what is your yeah. sort of superpowers that allow you to be so successful? Well, I think of myself as a researcher first and yeah also mentor uh, I, I have the well one of the secrets is that uh, we have outstanding young people coming through the institute that uh, <laughs> become our collaborators and so on and uh, yeah that's uh, that's perhaps one of the greatest privileges of being here uh, yeah absolutely uh, then I want to ask you um, because I don't get to ask people uh, of your stature and prominence so often. Uh, what's your theory or what's your, um, if you had to predict, what's more likely, uh, so to speak, that the multiverse exists uh, or that God exists? Um, I think that God exists is more likely. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Care to elaborate? Are you, are you, do you practice any religion out of curiosity? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sort of Catholic, but um, yeah, I, th- I, th- well, I think some general idea of God. I, I like the idea of uh, su- superior 
with Dalish ones and so on. Um, and, but yeah, um, but I think the multiverse is, is likely. I, I, the, the multiverse, I think it's, yeah, it's also likely. Uh, maybe both are, maybe both it, are true. It's difficult to see how to prove it. Yeah, it's also <laughs> difficult to see how to prove the existence of God. <laughs> yeah, I asked Freeman Dyson that same question, uh, more or less, uh, when I was writing my book, and he said, well, both are kind of great puzzles. Um, you know, puzzles can be solved, or maybe mysteries, he said, is, is the right word, because a mystery might not be solvable. A puzzle could be solved. I might not be able to solve a Rubik's Cube, right. uh, although right. I was joking today. I solved five sides of a Rubik's Cube, and I'm having trouble with that sixth <laughs> side. Uh, but, but in reality, I was wondering, uh, the last question kind of maybe relates to that as well, or actually the second to last question, if you have a few more seconds. Um, the second to last question is a life on other planets and intelligent life in particular. Do you think that's a worthy you know, quest given finite resources? What do you think the likelihood is of extraterrestrial intelligence that we could communicate with potentially? Um, well, I, I think this is, this is also one of the great questions that I think uh, we should devote some resources to answering. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think the likelihood it's uh, well it's hard to tell uh, <laughs> of course the fermi paradox uh, i guess you all know um and uh, yeah so that that makes me think it's unlikely but uh, yeah um, very interesting okay the last question is uh, the anthropic principle then it's very unlikely right <laughs> <laughs> that's right and fine-tuning Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so the last question uh, that I have uh, is usually I don't know if you've ever seen the movie 2001: A Space Odyssey. Yeah. But uh, there are these monoliths that play a role in the in the um, movie as a plot device. These are left by an ancient civilization uh, to be found when humanity is ready technologically to appreciate them. And uh, I want to ask you. Uh, Richard Feynman once said the following. He said, "If if there was a cataclysm that destroyed all scientific knowledge." And you could only pass on one sentence to the next generation of creatures. What statement would contain the most information in the fewest words? Now, I'm not going to ask you for one sentence. He said the simplest uh, one was about atoms and how the, everything is made up of atoms. But now we know so much more than what he knew, knew in the 60s or 70s when he made that statement. I want to ask you, what would you put on a monolith, a time capsule that would represent the culmination of, of physics knowledge or personal knowledge? that would last for a billion years as a time capsule for the future. Yeah, I think this, this idea that yeah, matter is made out of particles is very important. Uh, yeah, probably that perhaps general relativity <laughs> depends on how much you can put in, but <laughs> right. Yeah. The sentence yeah, could, could be a run on yeah, sentence it's made out of small particles. That's something that fits in a sentence, but uh, <laughs> Very good. Uh, well, uh, Dr. Juan Maldesena, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. I hope to uh, maybe contact you again in the future as I develop a little more understanding of your uh, excellent papers, very provocative, very entertaining papers, as as is your uh, style. And I, I appreciate uh, this very much. I'll put some resources in the show note, links to your papers, links to a talk you gave at the Institute. Uh, several years back on the same topic. Uh, I want to uh, express my gratitude to you, Juan, for sharing uh, so much of your time with my audience today. Sure, and it's a pleasure. Yeah, thanks. Thank you, Juan. Be, be well. I'll talk to you again soon. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. 
If you enjoyed this episode of Into the Impossible, please subscribe, comment, share, rate, and review. For a chance to win a free copy of our most recent guest's newest book, send a screenshot of your review to info at imagine.ucsd.edu. We appreciate hearing from you and are always open to your suggestions for future episodes. For more information, go to imagination.ucsd.edu. Find us on Twitter at ImagineUCSD. Watch us on YouTube. Listen on iTunes. Into the Impossible is a production of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Eric Veery, Director. Brian Keating, Co-Director. Patrick Coleman, Associate Director. Produced by Stuart Valko.